It is so good to see you here this morning. Uh, we are glad to have you here. Uh, it seems like not that long ago there was a group of people who had this idea. What if we got a bunch of churches together to serve our community in a concentrated time with a unique amount of generosity? A few people have said, why not do love your community all the time? Well, that's called being the life of the church. That's like taking care of your children every day of the week. But sometimes you have Christmas. Sometimes you go a little above and beyond to bless. And so we are kind of looking at how do we bring as many churches together? We started planning and praying. And we said, what if, what if a hundred churches came together? Well, as of this morning, there's 109 churches serving together for a week of generosity. Now, when we were talking as a worship team and kind of praying for the service beforehand, I was saying, you know, there's something really amazing and historic about that that really isn't even about the church. While that's true, can you imagine 109 of anything serving together? Like, if you stop and think about that, when was the last time you heard of 109 hospitals teaming up to do something at the same time to serve? Or 109 schools, or 109 whatever. Like, 109 of anything is amazing. The church ought to lead the way in that kind of unity, should it not? Like, the church ought to be paving the way to say, this is how we practice unity. This is how we practice serving. This is how we come together. We ought to model a unique kind of expression. So here we are with 109 churches uh, serving in a few weeks. You will have opportunity to be a part of that at the end of the service, in the foyer, all that kind of good stuff. But I did find myself pacing and thinking a lot this week I don't know, but just about, about my role in that, my part in that, being a pastor, really stuck by, like, we, we had the dream, we thought, what if, we spoke it out loud, people kind of turned their heads sideways, like, are you sure? But there's something about believing that something can be true here, over there, it just might happen, and then being over there when it's happened. Does that make sense? It's one thing to stand up and make a grandiose statement like, can you imagine if a hundred churches gathered together or it works together? Like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. There's a hundred and nine. There's something about the gap between saying it and believing it to be true and then actually experiencing and realizing it. And what that's called is faith. That's what we're supposed to do. Is it not, church? Are we not supposed to be the kind of people that believe things to be true, sees things that aren't not yet, hopes for things longed for out there? Are we not supposed to be people of faith? This sermon hasn't started yet, folks. Like, this is like when the open act comes out and just kind of warms you all up for a minute. Uh, but I've been thinking about my, my role in that specifically. You can think about your own role. But I've been thinking about my role as a pastor lately and thinking about getting to be a part of these kinds of things and helping lead these kinds of initiatives. And I don't know what has happened the last couple of weeks, but I found myself, uh, how do I say it? Like, re-humbled. Is that a word? I'm, I'm, I got the mic, I'm making stuff up. Like, being freshly taken aback that I get to lead and be a part of these kinds of things. Like, leaning back, like, we are a part of a hundred churches, or I found myself driving down downtown Yarmouth, like, I get to be the pastor of Yarmouth Wesleyan Church. Like, I'm allowed to do that. Someone entrusted that to me. I'll find myself driving up a street thinking, 
how did I even end up in Yarmouth? Forget being in, leading the church. What am I doing here? Have you ever found those moments in your life where you're doing something and you wonder, how did I get here? Like tucking your kids to bed at night? Like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, how do I have kids in a home that I own, a lawn that I have to mow? You can get caught up doing the things every day where all of a sudden you don't realize, like, how did we get here? The grandkids get dropped off and you're making them food and you're thinking, how do I have grandkids? Like, how has time gone by? How did I end up here? Because once upon a time, if somebody had told you that this is what it would be, you wouldn't have believed it. Like, if someone had said, here's where it'll end up, and look at the surroundings, look at the family you have and the children, and look where you get to live. You're not trapped in Yarmouth. You get to live here. You're allowed to live here. And you step back and kind of have an awe of like, man, I get to be a part of this. Now, for me, kind of me landing here specifically is a long journey of small decisions. That's how most life goes, doesn't it? I, I'm a pastor's kid. Most of you know that. And so when you're a pastor's kid, one of the things that comes your way are sweet older people who want to tell you that you're going to be a pastor someday. So when you're a pastor's kid, all your dad's friends and your grandparents' friends are like, oh, he's going to be a pastor someday. So I grew up with this kind of this idea that someday I'll be a pastor. But the best part of being a pastor's kid is you know what it means to be a pastor. And so I had this kind of love-hate relationship with this idea of giving my life to being a pastor or going to be a pastor, going to my teen years and thinking, that's the last thing I want to do. In your teen years, you learn that you have a will. When you're a kid, you express it. You don't know what it is. But in your teen years, you start to learn, I've got a will. I can make choices. I can make decisions. So I start trying to find anything else to do with my life than to become a pastor. I don't want to follow my grandfather. I don't want to follow my dad. I don't like crowds. I don't like speaking. I stutter. This is just not in the cards for me. So I'm trying to find anything else to do with my life but be this thing. But the problem is, it wasn't just people outside me saying it. It was starting to stir on the inside. I'm sitting at Roblin Wesleyan camp, and there's an evangelist preaching. I don't remember his name, but he's kind of preaching about the call and surrender of your life. You know those moments when you're in church and the preacher's yammering on, but your adrenaline is rising? The heart's pounding like, oh, he's talking to me or she's talking to me. You know those moments, right? I'm sitting there in that, in that row thinking, Ah, uh, he's talking to me. I do not want to surrender, because if I surrender, I know what that means. Not because if you surrender, you're a pastor, but for me, I know what this means. I was clear enough in my head, if I surrender to this, this is not being a pastor for 10 years, this is the rest of my life. Like, this is it. Like, I just knew it deep in my spirit. And so I went to the altar that night and kind of surrendered. Now, you would think, dealing with God, that would be the one time you have to surrender, and then it's over, Right? You never, ever question it ever again. You never look back on it. You never doubt it. Of course not. The working that call out is still continuing. Here we are almost 25 years later. And so I don't know how your journey has been, but one of the things I believe is that it's not pastors who are called into ministry. It's everybody's called. If you're a Christian, you are called into ministry and so we're going to dig into that here in just a moment if I don't send that communion cup. But uh, we're going to dig in. But here's what happens. When you think about this call into ministry, I don't know what you do, but we tend to have narratives that work in our mind at the same time God's working. So even saying the phrase, called into ministry, some of you start objecting. Like, I'm, 
I'm not called into ministry. You're called into ministry. I'm a pastor. You're a fisherman, school teacher, nurse, doctor, uh, whatever you do. Like you start to know that's something you do. I'm over here. You do that. Like we all have our objections when we start to think God wants to use us. One of my earliest uh, things that got in my head was, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to give my life to being a pastor, if I'm going to go into ministry, following God's mission, I will be the hardest worker God's ever seen. Now, I can't tell you what you would do, but for me, here's how I felt. If God wants to use me, one, he really ought not. I know me. He ought not. But if he's going to, I'm going to make sure that I was a good investment. Like, I'm going to make sure that if he picked me, I will work tirelessly so he knows one day I'll stand before him. He won't just say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. He'll tack on, and you were the hardest worker I ever saw. And I'd earn it back for him. I'd show him that I was worth picking because I'm a good worker. And so I committed so many years to being the hardest worker and the calluses on my hand. Other years of ministry, I thought God used the most gifted people the most. You've felt that before, right? You think like, man, I'd, I'd love to teach someday. And then you see someone teach, like, well, oh, I can't do that. You think, man, I'd love to be on the worship team. I'd love to sing and be a part of. Then you hear someone belt it out. You're like, well, I can't do that. You want to pray for someone? Someone stands up to pray. You're like, oh, my heavens, I'm never praying ever again. <laughs> like you buy these narratives that God uses the most gifted the most. So you may adopt what I adopted for a while. Fake it till you make it. If you don't have the gifting, just act like you do. Bad theology. And so this stuff works into our calling, and then you can get your own versions. There's so many of you who feel like, ah, I've sinned too much. Ah, God couldn't use me. I've done too many things. You start buying the lie, like, no, that's something you do. I don't do that. I pay you to do ministry, pastor. That's why I throw my toonie in the offering every week. Keeps you employed. You do that. And then the number one thing I hear in this region specifically is, oh, I'd love to be involved in the ministry and the mission of God, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Now, you think you'd hear that at every church, and you do, but I hear it at a disproportionate rate in southwest Nora. That line, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I don't know what that is. I think there's a, a strong sense of humility down here that I applaud. You, you kind of know that, right? Southwest Nova, blue-collar, hard-working, pretty humble people, right? I'm not setting you up this time. Pretty humble people, right? You're all like, I'm not saying anything. I think, if, if I may, if I may, I think there's a verge of moving from humility to self-loathing in Southwest Nova. Maybe that's overstated. I'll run that risk. But there's almost a vibe in Southwest Nova like, we'd be somewhere else, but here we are. Or we're not Halifax, or we're not this. And I'm not, you know how much I love Yarmouth, but there's just a little something in the air down here that by and large, it is very easy to build a volunteer culture, but not a leadership culture. There are some of the best hands and feet kind of people down here, but if you ask them to lead something, like, ooh, no, I don't want to lead something. No, that's not, that's not my jam. You need me to help? I'm there. But to take ownership, and what's wild, if you really look at it around here, we have a lot of good people who lead in the business world but are reluctant to lead in the church. And I'm not sure what that is, but there's something around here, something in the air, something in the water, something in the lobster. <laughs> there's something culturally that people are reluctant to lead 
in the church, but have no problem crushing it in the business world. And so when we talk about the mission and the ministry of God, people are like, ah, pastor, that's kind of your thing. I'll pray for you, I'll encourage you, but that's kind of your thing. I want to talk for, this, for a bit this morning about our thing. I want to dig into this whole idea of what does it, call, what does it mean to be called into ministry, to be called on into the mission of God, how do we work this out? So if you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the mission and ministry of God, as you look that up, and I hope you do, has been kind of kicked in the teeth the last two years. The last two years, we were on lockdown, shutdown, stay away from people, watch over people. People are evil. You might get this. You might get that. They might not be jabbed. They might be blind. And it really ostracized people against people. But the mission of God is to bring people together. It's not to stay away from people. It's to move closer to people. And so as we talk about renew, as we talk about old, timeless things being renewed, the mission and ministry of God needs to be discussed. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this incredible letter. It's got the depth of Romans, but more like the readability of Philippians. We did Romans, it was 16 chapters, kind of big, kind of meaty, but Philippians is real short. Ephesians is six chapters. You could sit down this afternoon at halftime of the NFL game you're watching, cheering on, and read all of Ephesians. It's not long. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's going to roll out our text. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then, the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, but that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Got this incredible passage. Opens up. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were lost. You're following the air of this world, the sons of disobedience. You're all sinners doing sinful things. Welcome to church in 2022. Now, some of you, some of you remember a day and age where that was the best part of the sermon. Where the preacher get up. All right, you bunch of sinners. All you do is sin, sin, sin. And everyone's like, yep. See, there was a day and age where that was assumed truth. Do some of you remember that day? Come on, don't make me point you out. I know which ones you are. You remember a day where that part of the passage, but you were dead in your sin, was assumed truth. You knew it. You were honest about yourself. You knew you fell short. 
You knew you did wrong. And here's the wildest part. It wasn't just true in the building. It was known in the community. Everybody believed that we were a little broken or a little off. Or at least they didn't argue it. Like maybe they didn't want to say they were a sinner, but it sure kept them from going to church. Right? Once upon a time, if you lived in a way that God would not be pleased with, you wouldn't darken the doors of a church for fear that the roof would come down. Right? Come on, nod with me. The belief was, God is holy and I'm very much not holy. So I better stay away. Even half truths, or sorry, even truths have a flip side that's weakness. See, that generation understood that we were not just sinners because we sinned, that we were sinners by identity and that led us to sin. The downfall is that they believed a holy God would want no part of them until they cleaned themselves up. Yes? But the preacher got up and could say, just a room full of liars and cheaters and sinners. And the room would be like, yeah, preacher, you got us. And the preacher would say, but God. And the room's like, yeah, there's the good news. Now what's interesting is when we say, but God, being so rich in mercy, lavished his love upon us. In 2022, the room's like, sure did. Because I'm a great person. Of course God loves me because I'm the most lovable person, the most delightful human being on God's green earth. My mom said so. <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? But here's the problem, church. Verse 4 doesn't punch without verses 1, 2, and 3. See, there's no weight. There's no weight or density behind but God if you all think you're awesome. If I think I'm already awesome, well then of course, why wouldn't God want me? Like, I've seen me, I know me, I've read my Facebook posts, I am delightful. See, the beauty of the gospel is that I do know me. I'm a sinner. And the fact that God would love even me is beautiful. So in 2022, we may argue over this whole sin business and somehow nobody does anything wrong anymore. Somehow in 2022, no one is guilty of doing anything wrong, but there's still evil everywhere. You know, I've got kids, folks. Have you seen kids? You've seen kids, right? Rotten little sinners. I got three little sinners in my house. Well, five, I'm telling the truth. These three little kids run around sinning constantly in ways that we never taught them. From the womb, they come out pre-programmed with a propensity to sin. You've seen it, and I've seen it. No one has to convince me that we have a bent to sin. We have a brokenness and a tilt. But God, but God being rich in mercy, lavished it upon us. Now you can hear that. The question is, did you receive it? And what I love about this passage is that before Paul gets into good works, which he will in 8, 9, and 10, before he talks with the works, because I don't know about you, going to a church that's got love week going on and serving and loving the community and loving my fellow human and doing good, it's kind of like, man, this is a, this is a great humanitarian group to be a part of. 
this social group of do-gooders, I kind of like it. The music's okay. The talking head's all right. Like, I get to serve people. I kind of like that. Please, 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 do not confuse the mission of serving and loving your neighbor that this is somehow a group of do-gooders. This is the church of Jesus Christ. This group in this room are not people who have it figured out. This room of people who will do Love Week will take what God first gave us and extend it. As he extends grace, we extend. As he pours out love, we love. As he sacrificed, we will sacrifice. This is a room of sinners saved by grace. Which means, Paul putting that first, he cares more about your soul than the calluses on your hand. If you want to sign up for Love Week, we'd love to have you. There's a spot for everybody. But make no mistake about it. Jesus cares about your heart and your soul. Do we serve? Of course, let's get into that. But that is an overflow of the heart, not a gateway to salvation. We tracking? So then he says that everyone is created for good works. That by grace you've been given, by grace you've been saved, by grace you are called not by works so that no one can boast, that you are his workmanship, created for Christ Jesus for good works. Who is his workmanship? The church. We are. No qualifications, no hedging. It'd be interesting if Paul says, we were created for good works because that's what men do. Now women, sit down. It doesn't say it. Settle down. <laughs> if Paul said in that passage, now we were created for good works, those who have money. Poor people, mind your business. If Paul said, now listen here, Greeks, we're called for good works. Jews, move out of the way. Acadians, get out of our way. Do you notice what he's doing there? None of that. None of that. We in Christ Jesus. Are you rich today? Doesn't matter. Welcome to the mission of God. If you're poor, doesn't matter. Welcome to the mission of God. French Acadian, especially, doesn't matter. <laughs> Just playing around. Come from away, doesn't matter. Welcome to the mission. Men, women, young, old, welcome to the mission and ministry of God. Do you hear it? Yes. Acts chapter 2. The church is gathered and the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. Speaking in tongues and signs and wonders and thousands of people pro professing faith in Jesus. Peter gets up and preaches and says there was a time when Joel preached. He said one day the Spirit of God would come and fall on men and women, young and old, Jew and Greek, free and slave. The room is like, are you kidding us? All we've ever known is separation in categories. He's like, No. Watch the Spirit of God pour out on everybody. Everybody in Christ. They start ministering, taking food, signs and wonders. All kinds of incredible things are happening. In Acts chapter 6, so much is going on that the preachers and teachers are preaching so much that the food is not being distributed to the widows. And what you don't want is angry widows. Yes? There's a few men in the room like... 
You don't drop the ball on the widows. And someone says, the widows are not being fed. And so the preacher's like, well, I'll run, I'll run the food over. And like, ah, if I run the food over, I can't preach and teach. And if I can't preach and teach, people can't come to faith in Christ. So I could, well, hold on a second. If we're going to do more ministry, instead of me running faster and harder, showing God I'm the best worker in the room, what if I get more ministers? He said, find seven men of good reputation, bring them forward, make sure they're full of the Spirit, because even if you're taking food to the widows, we want Spirit-filled workers. Get them ready, we'll get the food, and off to the widows it goes. And Acts rolls on and rolls on and rolls on with incredible mission, not because a few do a lot, but because everybody starts doing something. Do you hear it? The church, the capital C church, not Yarmouth Wesleyan, that's small potatoes. The capital C church is not built on the back of a half a dozen gifted people. It's impossible. It's foolishness. The mission of God is put in the hands of the people. So the question becomes, kind of where do you find your spot? Because it's not if you have a spot, it's you have a spot. You are part of the body of Christ. Now here's where all the objections start kicking in. I don't have time. I don't know enough. I'm not gifted enough. Ah. The third thing Paul lays out there for us is that God equips the worker for the work. See, everything inside of you wants to say, I don't know enough, I'm not enough, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm here to tell you as your pastor who loves you, if you sit there and you say you don't know enough, and you're not enough, and you're not good enough, your pastor's here to tell you, that's true. That's how much I love you. You don't know enough, you're not enough, and you're not gifted enough. But God, but God, that is the good news, church. I want you to know something. You are surrounded by a bunch of zeros. I love you, but it's true, isn't it? Led by a zero. The pressure of taking it off your shoulders that you have to be enough, that you, 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 no, but God being so rich in mercy. Jesus Christ created, you guys are a workmanship, created for good works. Do you hear the difference? Someone texted me this week a great quote by David Benner and said, God does not need your willpower, God needs your consent. Do you hear that? God does not need me. He needs me. He needs your consent. You have a will. You can either participate or not. We have choice. He needs your will. And when you think about, what am I consenting to? Does that mean I'm going to be on the nursery schedule until Jesus comes back? Some of you were recruited to teach Sunday school in 1975, and you're wondering when you get to be released. <laughs> this isn't that. Don't confuse that. That is just scheduling the organization of the church. That's not this. If you want to sign up to serve in our church, great. We'd love to have you. That's not this. The workmanship is not the schedule of the nursery. It's the way you live your life. The good works you were created for is a way of life that you might leave here and bump into somebody 
at wherever you're eating or maybe putting fuel in your vehicle or stopping, and God might just bring somebody along. And it wasn't scheduled, and you weren't thinking about it, but God, I'm, I'm your workmanship. If there's a place for me to serve, if there's something for me to do here, help me do it. Now, if you're wondering what does that mean, what happens is when, when you become a Christian, everyone here, by and large, understands grace that leads to salvation. You don't earn your salvation. Like, the gift of God, the salvation, is, is an act of grace when, we, when you ask for it. What happens, though, is we receive grace, then we get to work, like I did, to show God that we're a good investment of his grace. But church, you need to know that grace that leads to salvation is also the same grace that leads to equipping you for the work. You're never, or you ought not, to ever function outside of grace. So if you think someone stops you downtown, well, I don't know what to say. Breathe. Grace will be there when you need it. Well, someone stopped me and asked if I had a 10, and all I had was 10 on me, but my heart was racing. There's grace when you need it. There's an economy that you step into to realize, yes, we'll schedule the nursery, and yes, we'll have youth teams, and yes, 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 yes. A way of life that you are on mission and in mission with God wherever you find yourself. It's you. It's you that he wants to open your hands and say, God, I'm willing to participate with whatever you've given me, whatever gifts you've put in my hand. God, I'm going to try love. That seems like a safe first step, but I want to do, I want to live my life in a way that loves my community. What happens is you open your hand and say, God, I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. I know me. I've seen the mirror. I know who I am. But God. But God being so rich in mercy. See, week one we talked about, oh, the church ought to be more generous. The church ought to serve. The church ought to, the church ought to, and I said to you that week, the church can only do what those who make up the church do, right? For the church to be more generous, I have to be more generous. For the church to be more generous, you individually have to be more generous. There is no church without the members of the body who make it up. And so what happens is people say, oh, we should put dry shoes on every kid going to school this winter. We can do that. No kid should go home hungry. We can do that. Man, no single parent should be left to fight through life on their own. We can do something there. I need you to know with all the humility that I can muster, this church has enough people and resources, hear me what I mean, to do anything we want to do for the community. I'm not exaggerating. There, that might not be true in every community, but I'm here to tell you, but God being our helper by his grace, we are not lacking people and we are not lacking resources to do anything. Anything. But God. Right? Come on, church. We can do amazing things, not because we're amazing people, but God being so rich in mercy. He just wants to know are there some consenting, willing hands?